Gracious Father, again we come tonight, open your word, looking to learn about you, both learn truth about you, but also learn relationally about you. And Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts and our minds, and in this process, Lord, may we continue to be shaped and molded. May our spirits become like that of your Son. And in this process, Lord, may we, again, bring glory to you in all we say and do. Let us come with open hearts. Let us be challenged by your word. Let us be challenged by each other. And in this process, may we grow into a greater maturity in our knowledge and understanding of you. In that process, being brought together as one body, one family to advance your kingdom, Lord. That's our request tonight. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are in Acts 11, starting at verse 19, having left off last week at 18. If you remember where we left off, um, Peter had had that experience uh, about Cornelius where he had a dream and uh, the sheet came down and he was told um, to, that anything is is okay to eat because it was it's of God made of God, and uh, he is sent off or uh, called to Caesarea to Cornelius, who is a centurion, uh, a God fearer, so not a Jew, um, someone that is uh, interested or drawn to Judaism, and and so he is sharing the gospel with them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And it's this powerful conversion of, of Cornelius and his whole family. And, and he goes to Jerusalem, and some of the Jews in Jerusalem challenge him and, and say, you know, what are you doing? Um, you know, why, why did you do that? And he has to defend himself. Not so much defend himself per se as explain, though it, it feels somewhat like they're uh, criticizing. Well, we're told, criticized him. And so he explains what happened. And we are told right at the end of last week, when they heard these things, these things that Peter shared, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this idea that they fall silent, they're shocked a little bit about what they're hearing. And so then they give glory to God. But, but the sense is it's like, hmm, what is this? And so that's the setting for what we're going to be going into in the, tonight's passage is that uh, the Jews of Judea, the Christian Jews, the Jewish Christians, are hearing this, but I'm not sure that they really know what to make of it. So that's where we pick up in 19. Now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists, think Greeks, think Gentiles. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So if we remember what, what this movement was, and I, I apologize, I know these maps are hard to see, so I, I kind of just try to give you a general feeling. Next week we're going to be going into the first missionary journey of Paul. We're going to be handing out maps to help. Um, see, so this is a map we've been looking at. Just to kind of reference that, we're going to look specifically at another map. So this is the Mediterranean this is Middle East or Jerusalem, as we know it, uh, as the state government today. There, I mean, there, uh, Israel. There's Jerusalem, okay? Okay, Caesarea is right here. Samaria is right here. So in 8, if you remember in 8, after Stephen was persecuted, killed, the, especially the Greek-speaking uh, Jews, the Hellenist Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, which was one, Stephen was one, they fled. They got out of Jerusalem because clearly if they killed Stephen, they were looking to kill him. And so we saw they went up to Samaria, and, and many people came to faith, Samaritans. Now, they're not Jews in the Jews' mind, but they're kind of that step away, even though they recognize part of Scripture and they worship at Mount Gerizim. Um. They sent up uh, a couple apostles up there to check it out, right? Then we had Philip who went up the coast here. So they're, they're migrating up and down, okay? Um, and as they go, they're just talking about what Je- what they, their faith in Jesus Christ, what's happened to them. I mean, they're not like looking to spread the gospel as we would think like I'm an evangelist. They're just going out talking about what's happened to them, Okay. Okay, so here's our new map. Here's the Mediterranean. Here's Jerusalem. Okay. Caesarea, Tyrus, Sidon. Okay, you're going to hear about those. And Antioch is way up here, right before we go into Asia Minor. Okay. So it's Syrian Antioch. There's another Antioch. That's why it's called Syrian Antioch. And here's Cyprus. Okay. So this migration of Samaria... Okay, so they start going up the coast, up Phoenicia. Here's Phoenicia, okay. They keep moving up the coast. Here's Syria. There's Damascus. I'm sorry, Damascus. And they get all the way up to Antioch, which is a good ways away. Antioch is the third largest city in in the Roman Empire. After Rome and Alexandria, Alexandria is down here in Africa, famous Alexandrian library. Uh, so it's, it's this major city, argued to be somewhere between a quarter and a half a million people. That's a big city in that day. So that's what we're dealing with is that they got all the way up here. And there's thought to have been as many as 25,000 Jews in Antioch. Okay. So as, as these people are uh, seeking to avoid the persecution that's happening, 
they go up and they're speaking to only Jews, right? They're staying in their Jewish world because we all know that Christ came to the Jews and it's a fulfillment of Judaism and it's all about the Jews and they go up. But there's a couple of people, okay, more than a couple, who were part of the Jews who were out in the Greek world, diaspora, what we talk about when they go in, out there and they spoke Greek and they're from Cyprus, which is right here, third largest island in the Mediterranean, Cyrene, which is down here in North Africa. And they are speaking to Gentiles or Greek speaking. That's what, when we see Hellenist, uh, if you look at the NIV and many other translations, they're going to say Greek there. Here we say Hellenist, so we get a little confused sometimes. But think of uh, Greek speaking Gentiles. And so they share the gospel. And, and the stunning thing is what? They come to faith. So here in Antioch, we got Jews coming to faith. We've got Gentiles coming to faith together. And, and that gets back to where? Jerusalem, the mother church. And, and they send off Barnabas to check it out. Just like when they spent, sent Peter and John up to Samaria. And it isn't so much like, we want to be careful. It isn't that they're trying to control it, okay? They're not sending up, you know, guards up there to say, what are you doing? But they're just trying to figure out what is going on with this gospel that is spreading um, like wildfire, seemingly, in the Middle East. So they sent up Barnabas, and he goes up there, and, and it's, it's great the way they say this. When he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. He saw the grace of God. You got a question tonight. How do we see the grace of God? Now, in his context, it could be something literally as simple as maybe they were speaking in tongues. And he saw that as them coming to faith, grace of God. Maybe he's hearing about how people have been changed. But how do you see the grace of God? I mean, what kind of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit does it take to recognize the grace of God happening before us? And, and if we say, well, I've never seen the grace of God happen before me, then what does that say about us? Because we could talk about the grace of God all the time, right? I mean, you, know, you hear us say, you know, this happened because of the grace of God. I got up this morning because of the grace of God. I was able to do X, Y, Z because of the grace of God. But what does it look like when you're watching it, when you're observing it? And so he's... He has the grace of God happening in front of him. He sees it. He acknowledges it. He's glad. And then he exhorts them, encourages them, in other words, to remain faithful to the Lord. So they're coming to faith. You know, they're having this powerful experience. You know, I mean, it's one thing for a Jew to come to faith because he kind of understands. But a Gentile, a whole bunch of Gentiles, and, and maybe they're God-fearers. Okay, very easily it could be God-fearers. Remember, we define God-fearers as as people that are drawn to Judaism, often uh, celebrate the holidays, do all that, come to the synagogue, they just haven't gotten circumcised, which would make them a proselyte. So they stop short. But there's probably Gentiles, too, that are coming out of some other religion. Or maybe they're, you know, common in the day was the mystery religions, where people are trying to see the special knowledge that's going to make me closer to God. And so maybe they're seeking the special knowledge, and then they, they hear about the gospel and they come to faith. So Barnabas is sitting there going, okay, I got a bunch of 
probably observant Jews over here, Jewish Christians that are observing the Mosaic Law. I got these people who came out of a totally different background, and they've come to faith. And he's looking at all this and saying, okay, okay, whoa, okay, everybody, wow, just stay faithful. Okay, let's just, let's just, I need help. There's so many of them, and there's only one of me. So what's his solution? Okay, he goes and finds his good buddy, Saul, who's way up at Tarsus up here, okay? So he goes via land. This is Paul's route. He went by sea to escape out of Caesarea. But he goes from here around the land to get Saul and finds him. Apparently Saul wasn't at his home address because he had to look for him. And he finds him and he brings him back. Now, the great mystery is, what's, what's Saul been doing? It's been years. What's Saul doing? And there's all kinds of things, speculation. In fact, there's books written on what was Saul doing. Um, we don't really know. I mean, the odds are he was probably preaching. He was probably studying. He was probably doing all this. But he goes and brings him back because he needs help with all these people that are coming to faith. I mean, I, I, let's say, let's split the difference between a quarter of a million and a half a million. Let's say 350,000. 350, a city of 350,000. Let's just say a tiny, tiny percentage. Let's say, I don't know, 6,000 people came to faith. Can you imagine? Say, I mean, you're Barnabas. You show up and go, whoa, this is amazing. This is the grace of God. It may be the grace of God, but what am I supposed to do? And they're all like going, uh, uh, you're, from, you're from Jerusalem, right? Okay, what's the current word? What are we doing? What are we supposed to do? How do we get organized? What are we supposed to know? Teach us. Okay, sure. Let me go get a friend. So they come back and they spend a whole year meeting with the church and, and taught a great many people. And great many means a lot. I mean, I know it says great many, but... In the Greek, it means a lot. And it's interesting, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We often read that, and I certainly did, and, and we think, oh, so they started to call themselves Christians. No, they didn't call themselves Christians for over 100 years. This is what they were called. And, and probably not in a um, positive way. Probably in a way that would be deemed somewhat negative. Like uh, Herodians, were those that worship were part of the cult that worshipped the Herods? Okay, uh, they, there's the uh, the people that worship the different uh, Caesars, and so they were probably seen as these are the people that worship the dead guy, Christ, because they keep talking about Christ, and so they just took Christ and made it Christians, and that's what they were called, and so over a hundred years until they start calling themselves. Uh, Christians in a positive light. Not that it was a derogatory, it's just not a positive term. So, 27. Now in those days, prophets came down. Remember, Jerusalem, everything is down. Even though that's way north, everything from Jerusalem is down. If you go to Jerusalem, it's always up. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit... There'd be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. By the disciples, as, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So prophets, that would have been the same as a Jewish prophet. So basically a prophet's job is to foretell or tell forth the truth of God, right? So uh, expound on Scripture, uh, do some teaching, uh, and, and all these other things, and occasionally tell what's going to happen in the future. That is not the primary role of the prophet, okay? Now, we have, we have the written prophet, 16, right? Four majors. We're in one right now on Sunday morning. And then the 12 minors. Those are called the written prophets because they wrote or were written about, and we have a record of them. There are many prophets that never wrote anything, okay, that went around doing what Agabus does, and, and that's exhorting, teaching, expounding, and occasionally saying, I have a word from God that this is going to happen. And in this case, that's what he does. It's interesting that, um, you know, we, we have to be careful. We don't always need to have something outside the Bible confirm what's in the Bible to make us comfortable. But in this case, we have direct uh, acknowledgement in, in our favorite friend um, Josephus and a few other places that we think this is happening in 44 because that's, uh, there's a couple things that are going on, one of which is our next passage when Herod gets that part of the uh, Middle East. And there's a, there's a famine from 45 to 47, a significant famine. Most of, uh, there's a couple of places that produce a lot of the food, one of which is Egypt, produces most of the food for Rome and a lot of the, the rest of the Roman Empire. And Egypt even experienced drought conditions during that time. So we have, we have acknowledgement that, that this that he foretold actually existed. And so what do they do in, in uh, Antioch? They take a collection because in, in Judea, it's, Judea is a very poor part of the world. It doesn't have a lot of good agriculture. It has to buy a lot of its food. And if, if the droughts come, the little bit of their ability to produce is really diminished. So they take up a collection and send it to the mother church. And I find this interesting because here's this. This would be maybe a valid analogy, maybe not. But this would be like us in year five of our existing, taking up a collection and sending it to Wooddale, saying, here, we hear you're having trouble. Have some money, you know. Here's this fledgling. Now, Antioch is quite rich because a whole bunch of goods go through this this uh, port, uh, this area. But they take a collection and send it to, to Jerusalem. A couple other things. They, who do they give it to? They give it to the elders, not the apostles. So it seemed like the apostles have left, okay? And we're going to see this in the next passage as to really what was going on, why they left. And so they're giving it to the elders. And it's Barnabas and Saul that are sent there. So it's, we're going to see later on another collection taken by Paul. By that time, he's called Paul for uh, Jerusalem in another famine. And that comes uh, a number of years later. So this is the first of those, and this is the only way it talks about it. The other one he talks about in his letters quite a bit. So they take the collection, go down there, give it to them so that they can buy food, which is how they got most of their food anyway uh, in that time. 
So that's our, our Antioch experience. Now we're going to shift gears and we're going to bring in uh, one of the Herods. So let's go to 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, one of the disciples slash apostles, with the sword. And when he saw that it had pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so Herods. Don't we seem, it seems like we turn around, we got Herods everywhere, right? Who are these Herods? So let's take a look. We have six Herods in the New Testament. Four of them are referred to as Herod, by Herod. Two of them do not have Herod in their name, but they're still Herods. They all come from the first guy, Herod the Great. Nasty dude. I mean, one nasty dude, okay? I mean, he does all kinds of things in the time of Jesus. He's the Herod when Jesus is born. And his death is in 4 BC. It's how we determine when Jesus was born. Jesus was clearly born before 4 B.C. because Herod is the king when Jesus is born. And, and he has to have been born later than 6 B.C. because of the census. So we got a little window in there between 4 and 6, probably closer to 4, uh, that he was born. This guy was an amazing builder. He's, when we say Herod's temple, built the, the temple for the Jews, he's the guy that built it. The, the amazing port at, at Caesarea, he built it. He built all kinds of things. He was a phenomenal builder, way ahead of his time. He is also a very interesting heritage. He's an Edomite. Edomites are descendants of Esau, right? So Esau's aren't Jew. I mean, the Edomites aren't Jews. Esau wasn't, he wasn't Jacob, right? So how does a Herod become a Jew? Well, in the Hasmonean Empire, you know, in the second century, so like 130, they revolted against the Greeks, the Jews did, and they got their freedom. In fact, they were an independent country for over 100 years. They kind of fell apart, and then the Romans just came in at 50 B.C. and just kind of took over, and that's how the Romans show up. So part of the Hasmoneans' advancement is they went to the Edomites, and took a sword, conquered him, and said, oh, by the way, you're going to become a Jew now. So they forced them all to become Jews, including forcing them to be circumcised. So that's how Herod became a Jew. So technically he was a Jew, but the Jews didn't look at him as much of a Jew. So it was kind of this mixed, Rome saw him as a Jew, so Rome put him in power and gave him great uh, landmass to, to oversee and saw him very favorably and he was a great politician from that standpoint and they said see we've given you a Jew as your king and they're going he's no Jew I mean so this is the back and forth right so then he had he died and then he had well he had several sons but he killed most of them he killed anybody that he thought was a threat to the throne so he killed all but three of his sons killed his wife well some of his wives, not all of his wives. Um, just an interesting guy. Uh, so he has three sons, Archelaus, Anapas, and Philip. 
that take over. See, they all start 4 B.C., 4 B.C., 4 B.C. So what the emperor did is he said, he said to Herod Great, when you die, how do you want me to handle this? And he said, okay, give half to Archelaus, give a quarter to Antipas, and give a quarter to Philip. And that's exactly what the emperor did, right? So he divided it up between those three. So how do these guys play in the Bible? Well, he dies. He's the Herod that when Joseph is coming back from Egypt and, and he's told Herod has the part that Bethlehem is in, okay? He goes to Galilee with Jesus instead of going to Bethlehem. So that's how Jesus ends up in Galilee because Joseph is trying to avoid this dude who's not quite as nasty as his father but really, really, really close, okay? So then where's Antipas? Well, Antipas divorces his wife and marries the wife of his brother, Philip, but not this Philip, okay? A different Philip. Are you following this? Are you taking notes? And remember John the Baptist complains? So he asks his wife at that party, what do you want for your present? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist because that's what she was, or the daughter, I'm sorry. That's what she was prompted by her mother. So he's the, the Herod the king that kills John the Baptist. This Herod, we just, in passing, we do, he is not referred to Herod. He's just referred to Philip. And it's just in Luke 3, 1, and it's literally in passing. has nothing to do with it. Then we come to the descendants of these three, okay? This guy's father is killed in 7 AD, okay, by his brother, threat to the throne, um, and this guy got sent off to Rome because Herod's kill Herod's. He got sent off to Rome. And getting sent off to Rome, he happened to be playmates with the guy that's going to become Caesar. So when his playmate becomes Caesar, he starts to get tremendous amounts of land. And in 41 uh, A.D., he gets uh, most of all his dad had, including uh, Judea and, and up by uh, the northern parts. And, and he's the one that we're, we've got today, okay? His son, Agrippa II, is going to come later in Acts. So he's the one here that comes to power in Judea in 41, okay? And the first thing he does is he wants to what? Get in good with the Jews. Well, how do you get in good with the Jews? Now, he is actually more Jew than his grandfather, okay? So remember, Herod the Great is his grandfather because his mother is actually a Hasmonean, actually part of the Hasmonean uh, dynasty that actually ruled over uh, Jerusalem. So his, his mother is Hasmonean. His father is kind of is Jew. So he's more Jew than, than most of the Herods. So he comes into power and, and he sees right away and says, if I want to get in good with the Jews, what do I do? I start killing the leaders of the Christians. That's where we're at. Remember, we've had about 10 years of good, quiet stuff. Well, that's going to end right now. So he starts off by killing James. James, the brother of, of John, one of the three of the inner circle, Zebanese two sons. So he, he kills him, okay? 
And, and it pleases the Jews. Because right now, before this whole Gentile thing was happening, the Jews were kind of, okay, this is kind of weird. I don't believe this, but these apostles are really keeping the law. God fears James, the brother of Jesus, different James, is really keeping the church very observant. So they're all good. But now the words come back to what? Gentiles, Gentiles are coming to this faith. This can't be Judaism. We know it can't be Judaism because Jews cannot mix with Gentiles that have not been become fully proselytized to, to Judaism. So this cannot be right. And all of a sudden the persecution just ratchets up again. And now we've got the state involved. Before it was just basically the Sanhedrin and, and all that. But now we actually have the Roman state as embodied by Herod, Agrippa I, bringing this about. And, and so he kills James by the sword, so beheaded him. And this pleased him, so he proceeds to grab Peter. There's the prize, right? I mean, Jim, James is a, is a big guy to get, but I get Peter and I kill Peter and I what? I've just scored major points with this new group of people that everybody knows is a pain to, to govern. I've made major points with them. So he grabs Peter and, and he's going to kill him. His problem is he's in the middle of the unleavened bread one week, seven day celebration that happens after Passover. And it's not good politics to kill somebody, especially a good Jew, in the middle of that period of time. So he throws him in prison thinking after the unleavened celebration is over, he's going to kill Peter. He's going to have a one day trial, kill him the next day, boom, we're done, I'm a hero, all's good, right? Doesn't quite go like that. Verse 5, or 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, him being Peter, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Well, that's, that's trusting, being able to sleep between two soldiers when you know you're going to probably be killed the next day or the next day. Between uh, two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries uh, before the door were guarding the prison. And so, got this right. He's laying on the floor. He's chained to two guards, and there's two guards at the door. Okay? I think that's security. But behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Hey, 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 Peter, wake up, wake up. We got to get going here. I just, this account has so much humor in it. It's just, it's just, I mean, we're getting to the funnier part. He struck Peter in the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. The, the sense is either they're asleep or they're blinded or something. Okay. Came to the iron gate leading to the city. That would be the gate in the last gate. It opened for them of its own accord. They went out and went along one street and, ult- and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. His death. 
So the people are expecting Peter to die. All right? So, so this whole thing is just, I mean, you got guards. They're there to what? Guard him. They're on a rotation. They're not supposed to be sleeping. Even the ones laying next, who he's chained to, they're not supposed to be sleeping. Certainly the ones at the door aren't supposed to be sleeping. So were they blinded? Were they, were they put to sleep? What were they? We're not told, but he walks right outside. Then he wakes up and goes, oh, I better do something. They're still looking for me. So 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark, let's just take John Mark. We haven't been introduced to him yet. He's going to come on a little bit later, and we're going to see him in the mercenary journey. That's John Mark as the writer of the gospel of Mark, okay? Mark, okay, uh, is his uh, Greek name. John is his Hebrew name. Saul, Paul, same thing. Most of them did, okay? By the way, Pastor Just, his name is John, middle name Mark, named after the sin of Israel. Just a little tidbit for you. So uh, they went to the mother of John, uh, Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They're praying for Peter. This is a great. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Okay, so this must have been quite a house, okay? Because basically it's a house with a courtyard with a kind of a walled gate structure around it. So he's coming to the gate, knocking on the gate, and so she comes out, right? Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. You know, can you see this? Knock, 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 knock. Peter, it's you. Okay, not going to let me in. Hey, guys, he's out there. They're looking for him right now. They're trying to kill him. And she leaves him standing there. And then they get in this argument. It's Peter. No, it's not Peter. It's probably his angel. Can't be. You're out of your mind. What are you doing? Peter's going, would you just let me in? He's trying to knock coyly, not drawing any attention, but he's just, please, Rhoda. There's a song. Amy, you know that. Rhoda, why do you keep knocking? Where's my wife? Yeah, what's that song? Do you remember back, way back, long time ago? Rhoda, just open the door, Rhoda, is the song. It's great. Oh, well. (laughs) <laughs> oh. but Peter continued knocking and when they opened they saw him and were amazed but motioning to him with his hand to be quiet to be silent he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison he's going hey, let's not make such a ruckus and he said tell these things to James and to the brothers then he departed and went to another place. It's interesting. This is another confirmation that the apostles have left Jerusalem. When he says brothers, he does not mean the apostles. He would mean brothers in the faith that are part of the leadership. James is now clearly the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and that's confirmed in just a couple of chapters. So he tells them to do that. Now, um, so he gets out of there. In fact, we're not told where he goes. And, and the thought is that that was purposeful, that Luke didn't want to reveal where he was. We don't know how Luke wrote this. He might have been writing parts of it along the way, didn't want it revealed where Peter ended up going uh, for his own safety. Um, 
Now when the day came, there was no little uh, disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, which means he tortured them, and ordered them that they should be put to death. Then he went down uh, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is one of the great stories. You know, I mean, it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. It's got humor. It's got amazing how, I mean, they're right there. How did you do that? Um, and, and the believers are praying. I mean, I mean, you've got to believe the intensity of the prayer was amazing. Yet when he shows up, they're like, so we don't know what they're praying for. I mean, they could have been praying for Peter to be strong. They could have been for Peter to be given a lighter sentence at his trial, maybe even acquitted somehow. They were not clearly expecting him to just be miraculously brought out of prison and to show up at their door. But that's what happens, and that's what God does. And the power of it sometimes is when God overwhelms the people by his grace and by his power. I mean, if they're praying, you know, God, have Peter get a light sentence, and he gets a light sentence, okay. But when this happens, you just, you can't explain this. I mean, a light sentence, you say, okay, for whatever reason, Herod had mercy that day. But this, yeah, this is amazing. This is one of the great stories. And, and then this whole idea of Rhoda and the people not being able to believe. I mean, when we pray, do, do we believe? What do we, what do we expect to happen when we pray for something to happen? It's just, it's, it's interesting. The other thing, too, is we've got to confront that this year. We, we have in this short period of time, we see James die. And I'm sure they were, they were praying for James. And, and Peter's saved. How, what do we do with that? Why, why, was, why was Peter killed and, or why was James killed and Peter wasn't? Did they pray differently? Did they deserve, did James somehow this great pillar? I mean, I don't think he deserved anything different than Peter. So why? How do we make sense of that? Does it seem fair? You're going to have a chance to wrestle with that tonight. How do we, how do we look at that and we pray and, and, and it's answered and we pray and it isn't answered and we go, God, why, why do we in the gospel see uh, Jesus walk into a pool and, and, and there's hundreds of people and he picks one out and heals them? And then another time, it seems like he's coming into an area and everybody that's sick is healed. Is he just arbitrary? Is he random? Is he just, it's, on Tuesdays I heal everybody, on Wednesdays I don't? I mean, what, what do we do with that? Hmm. Now we come to interesting account. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Siren. These are independent cities. They're right here. Okay. They're independent cities, so they're not under his authority. 
okay? They're, they're sovereign cities. But they get all their food from Galilee, okay, up here. Galilee was a very fertile area, not very far away. And so he, um, they had a dispute over some authority, you know. They're in his area, but he doesn't have control over them. Always a tough situation, right? And so it seems that he exercised a little authority and withheld their food from them. Well, nothing gets your attention if you're a city and somebody cuts off your food supply. And he says, okay, I may not govern you under the purview of Rome, but I also can stop your food from going there. So what are we going to do? They decide to make nice to Herod and, and throw this reconciling event and he decides to play nice, so he puts on a big games. I mean, games in the Greek world are huge, you know. Um, the Olympics are one of the things we know, but they are doing games all the time, big celebrations. And so he's having this huge celebration as part of this. So that's the background of this account. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Herod and Siren, and they came to him with one accord. So they came together and presented their case. And they persuaded uh, Blattus, uh, who's the king's chamberlain. That term chamberlain actually means uh, a bedroom attendant. Like he would be, like you're, he'd dress them and, you know, Downton Abbey. Any of you ever see that? Okay, that kind of attendant. Except it's taken on way more power. Way more power than that. So they went to his guy and they pleaded their case and said, Can you speak to the king? We're really sorry. We shouldn't have said anything bad and can you get them to give us our food back they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country or uh, their country depended on the king's country for food on an appointed day herod put on his royal robes this robe is spun silver it's described by josephus um, who's a contemporary of this period of time and it was supposed to have been just unbelievable. I, I can't even imagine spun silver, real silver, high quality. You know, back then, precious metals were plentiful for the rich. And they spun it, and it's supposedly this coat that just was amazing with the silver. And so he puts on his royal coat, and he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oratory to them. Supposedly he did this as the sun was rising. So this is the, he throws these games. They have this big celebration. They have this big amphitheater type situation that had been built by uh, by his grandfather and he's there and and he's sitting on his throne like thing it's more than a throne though it's like a pulpit throne and the the sun comes up and the sun hits this coat and he just Josephus describes this as just this amazing glow that comes from him and they react. So they're, they're trying to make nice, trying to impress him, and then they see this thing. So that's all behind them coming out with this statement. And the people shouting the voice of a God, not of a man. Okay? Immediately, because he, he gave this oratory, and then they say this. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is often, when I first read this years ago, or first, I go, what? 
Um, so they want to make nice. It's not uncommon to call a king uh, a godlike figure. Usually it's somewhere between a human and a, and a full god. They occupy some space in between. Um, you know, the religion of the emperor was a required religion. You had to worship the emperor if you're in the Roman Empire. So that's his thing. He gives his oratory. They, they break out in this great praise of him. But he doesn't, he accepts it. And he doesn't give God the glory. And God kills him. Eaten by worms, that's just a term for, uh, you know, intestinal type disease type thing. Josephus tells us that he lived for eight more days in great pain and then died. And, and it's kind of like, uh, wow, what do we do with that? We saw it in Ananias and Sapphira. God killed them. And here's another. I mean, do we think that way? Do we think of God as killing people? It, it's hard, you know. I mean, here, he's an evil guy. But there's a lot of evil guys. Why him? What did he do that he deserved uh, death? So it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. We've just seen Peter and, J- and James, and then we see Herod. And so in this short little chapter, we see three deaths and trying to make sense of that, those deaths. And God stops one, doesn't stop another, and causes a third. And, and sometimes it just challenges our, our lukewarm view of God's sovereignty. Yeah, God's sovereign, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. Then when God does something in space and time that we deem, oh, or chooses not to, we struggle with that. And against all that background, we have 24. But besides all that happening, the word of God increased and multiplied. Apostles are being killed. Apostles are being uh, imprisoned and, and Peter's being driven away. All the stuff's going on, but the one constant in Acts is the advancement of the kingdom of God through the spreading of the gospel. And we will see that throughout. Then 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from uh, Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing that offering to the uh, church in Judea, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We go on. Now they're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucas of Cyrene, um, Manus, a lifetime friend of Herod the Tech, Art, um, he was Antipas' friend, okay, um, Saul, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the works to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What follows is for the next two chapters is the first missionary journey of Paul. We'll cover that next week. So we, we clearly have um, some influential people in Antioch. We, ha- we have a close friend of, of one of the kings, um, we have uh, people from the different areas. We have Barnabas and Saul. We have the church growing very rapidly. And, and then God speaks to this church. This is going to be the, 
the central outpost of God's advancement of the kingdom into the, the, the Roman Empire. And he speaks to him and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, for what I've called them to do. I mean, how, how do we have that kind of sensitivity as a church to what God's calling us to do? I mean, we wrestle with that all the time, you know. I mean, if we're going to build something, whether we're going to try something, open a ministry, do this, do this. How do we, how do we discern what God's calling us to do in the will of God? All right. Grab your Bibles. Go into your small groups. If you have not been in a small group yet, come see me and we'll get you taken care of.